If you would please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and I thought it would be good to look at another consideration of faith. Faith being very important in our lives, as without it, we cannot please God. The Bible is very clear on this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we have to consider the uh, context of this letter to the Hebrews written by Paul. And these are Christians who are under pressure. And they have been faithful. But the pressure is severe. And there is presented to these Christians a way out to deny Christ. And here, Paul is giving them all the reasons why that is not an option. And so I wanted to look this morning at Moses. You know, usually when we think of Moses, we, we think of the law, which makes sense, uh, being uh, the instrument God used to bring the law at Sinai. But Moses was a man of faith. His faith was not in the law, as we're going to see. So let's consider Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this section, uh, verses 24 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith Moses did these things. And so I want to look at these various things that we see in the life of Moses by faith. We see, first of all, that by faith he refused. By faith he chose. By faith he esteemed. By faith he forsook. By faith he endured. And by faith he saw. So let's consider first here in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You remember in uh, the origin of Moses, how he was born under the sentence of death. Pharaoh had ordered all the Hebrew boys to be killed. And there was no mercy he expanded that commandment. At first, he ordered the midwives to kill these little boys as they were born. 
but they refused to do so, made a bunch of excuses, didn't happen. And so Pharaoh expanded, expanded the commandment where anybody could kill one of these little Hebrew boys. So his parents, they broke the law. They hid him. They put themselves at risk. It's the right thing to do. They hid the little boy until it became impossible to hide him anymore. And so his mother takes a basket, makes it waterproof best she can, hides it in the reeds there at the Nile, and commits the boy to God's providence. And it didn't take long before God acted. And the little boy was found by Pharaoh's daughter. Isn't that interesting? The daughter of the one who had sentenced him to death. And so this boy grew up to be a man, was raised in the household of Pharaoh, the enemy of God's people, and he had the whole world in front of him. He was born into great privilege, wealth, prestige, power, pleasure, anything he wanted. But as he learned about God's people, as he learned about who he really was, he made a choice. And he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. A believer has to be distinct from the world. A believer has to make that choice. And Moses knew that he would lose all the things that he had, but he was willing to do so. I'm going to read to you a passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what Paul says here. To all believers, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We see here that there isn't going to be able to consider, to, to continue this relationship between the people of the world and the people of God. There's going to be problems. There's going to be conflict. And at some point, there's going to have to be a choice made. And notice that he did this publicly. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This break wasn't just a secret thing he did in his heart and in his mind. It was a public break. It must not be secret. The Lord Jesus has public followers. We're not supposed to be followers of Christ in secret. 
Paul, when he was writing to the Romans, to the, to the Christians at Rome, he said, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Everybody knew who these people were. And you know, it isn't going to take long where you are out in the world as a Christian to be known for what you are. It isn't going to take long. When you're standing with, with all the guys at work and everybody's laughing at the dirty joke but you, they know why. There's a distinction. Consider the word church. Now, the Greek word, ecclesia, it means the assembly of those who are called out. That's what the word means. The congregation of those who have been called out, called out of the world to belong to God. Just like Moses, his name means to be drawn out. He was drawn out of that Nile. And the reason why he could no longer have that fellowship with this position he was in in Egypt was because Egypt was a pagan land, a pagan people, people that worshiped false gods, people that didn't trust the true God, a system that had rejected God. Remember that Egypt is a type. It was a shadow and a type of the world system. It wasn't just in Moses' time. This is a truth that's in every age. In the book of the Revelation, the world system is mostly goes under the name Babylon. But it, there's a place where it says this great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Babylon why was it called? Why is the world system called Babylon by the Holy Spirit spiritually? Why is the world system we live in called Babylon? Well, what did Nebuchadnezzar say about Babylon? He was the king of Babylon. He said, it's glorious. Look at it. It's amazing. It's astonishing. Look at the power. Look at the magnificence. He was filled with pride when he thought about his kingdom, Babylon. World systems like that, isn't it? Full of pride. Why is it called Sodom? Why is spiritually the world system called Sodom? Because it's depravity, sin. All the abominable things that God has condemned are practiced and celebrated in this system. And Egypt. Why is this world system spiritually called Egypt? Because the people of God are in bondage there. Because the people of God are citizens of another country, heaven. We're strangers here, pilgrims. This isn't our home. 
We have another home. And so Moses, by faith, refused to be any longer associated and identified by that world system. I will not be part of it. I got to live here, but this isn't who I am. This is not who I am. So who was he? We'll look down at verse 25. By faith he chooses rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses identifies with those that the world hates. And remember what set the people of God apart. It was the promise of God. That ancient promise that had been given to Adam and Eve. That from the seed of the woman there would be a savior. The promise given to Abraham. That in his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. These are the promises that he trusted in. Then he associated himself with these people and joined with these people, even though in the world's eyes, they were nothing. His promises didn't mean anything to the world. Look at them. They're just a bunch of shepherds, just nobodies. They don't have any power. They don't have any wealth. Matter of fact, we kick these people around all the time and they can't do anything about it. We kick them all around. They're nobodies. And those are the people that Moses chose to be with. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. You see, it takes faith to make a choice like that. Moses would never have made that choice if he himself did not believe those promises. He believed those promises for himself. That's why he is able to go against what his eyes saw. When he looked out from his palace there in Egypt and he saw the Egyptians, he saw them doing good. And he looks out and he sees the Hebrews, the people of God, and there they are getting whipped, dragging heavy stuff around. Their kids being taken away from them and thrown into the Nile River to be eaten by wild animals. That's what he saw with his eyes. By faith, he had to see the spiritual reality. That those people that were oppressed were the ones who were rich, who were the ones who were powerful, who were the ones who were blessed. Human eyes can't see that. Only faith can see that. And that's why he was willing to make that choice. By faith. And the affliction that the people of God is going to suffer. Always the people of God are going to suffer afflictions. They may not be severe as what they were experiencing. But you're always going to experience the displeasure of. Of the society in which you live. 
even in the days when the people of God lived under the Roman Catholic system with the papacy that claimed to be Christian, true believers suffered. Because what, that, what the world system was calling Christianity was not Christianity. It was still the thing we see here in Revelation. It was Babylon, Sodom, Egypt, under the Roman Catholic system. And it took faith to see that. It had a phony appearance of Christianity. What happened when the gospel, according to the word of God, began to be preached? The mask came off. And that world system was revealed to be what it really was. A vicious wild beast. Bloodthirsty. Without the least piety toward the true God. So believers are always going to be under some kind of pressure. Maybe severe and maybe light. But whatever time, whatever place, you're always going to be out of place as a believer. And so these things that are written in Hebrews, they apply to you. They apply to you. If you flip over to Hebrews chapter 10, talking about this association, As Paul is encouraging these believers to stay steadfast in the faith, he says this in verse 32, 10:32, call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. So these believers, when they first came to faith, they witnessed other people being persecuted for the faith and they didn't run away from that. They were willing to be associated with persecuted, rejected people. They were willing to even lose their stuff. So with government approval, their houses would be burglarized and they didn't have any recourse to law. They're willing to let it go can't keep anything here anyway and they had a more enduring substance in heaven so we see that faith requires you to associate with the people of God even if that brings you into trouble it will bring you into trouble you still got to do it if we look back at our text in verse 25 again, 11:25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. 
you know, a lot of times the world system will try to bribe you. You know, they'll use force and coercion, but it's easier just to use seduction to promise you all these wonderful pleasures, comforts, luxuries of life, to enjoy you pleasures that God is, you can enjoy pleasures God's forbidden, even with their approval. And that, that hooks a lot of people. It hooks a lot of people into denying Christ. But we must never choose to participate in the world's sinful pleasures. Peter also deals with this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, Speaking evil of you. See, it's it's uh, surprising to the world that you would not want to join with them in the fun. And why was Moses willing to do this? He abstained from the pleasures of sin. He was willing to disengage his part in the world system that he benefited from. Why was he willing to do this? We'll look at verse 26. It says he esteemed, he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Suffering with the people of God is more blessed and wonderful than to have the best the world has to offer. That's what he considered. Being down there with the slaves is greater riches than to be in the palace with the unbelievers. He esteemed the reproach of Christ. And notice what it says here. The reproach of Christ. You say, wait a minute. How is he esteeming the reproach of Christ? Christ hadn't even come yet. You have to remember that the promise all the way back in the Garden of Eden given to Adam and Eve concerned Christ. And all the people of God, all through time, even before Christ came, that was the messianic hope. And anything they suffered for God in faith was really for Christ. The reproach they suffered, the afflictions they suffered, were for Christ in faith to Christ, even before he came. And he counted that greater riches than the treasure in Egypt. Think about the treasures that you have in Christ. Paul says you are complete in him. You're complete in Christ. 
everything you need, you have in Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at verse 30. But of him, that is of God, but from God, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Christ Jesus is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is our wisdom. He is your light. He is your guide. He is your knowledge. He is the one who teaches you and guides you in the right way. So many people in this world wandering around in circles. They don't know why they're here. They don't know what the world's about. They don't know how anything works. They have no purpose or meaning. Their lives are empty. But you're not like that. The Lord has given you truth. He's given you wisdom. Who God is. Who you are. It says also that he is our righteousness. The thing that we lacked. What separated us from our creator. The violation of the law. Our unrighteousness, our sins separated us from God. And he gave himself to be our righteousness in fulfilling the law on our behalf and dying on a cross for our sins. He fulfilled the precept and the penalty of the law for his people in their name, in their place. And in him, we are righteous. In him, we have fulfilled the law. In him, we have died. In him, we have been raised to life. He is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. You don't stand by works. You don't stand by your works. You do stand by his works. He fulfilled the law. The law has been satisfied. The law of God has been satisfied in Christ. It was satisfied in his precept. Jesus kept it. It was satisfied in its penalty. Jesus paid the price for your failure to keep it. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus paid. He paid that debt. Every bit of it. So justice is satisfied. So you have in Christ that righteousness. He is made unto his sanctification. So you're justified, you're counted righteous in Christ. You're accepted in Christ. But now he's actually going to make you righteous in yourself. He's transforming you. Because you are accepted in Christ, he's going to make you like Christ. You're being sanctified, transformed, changed. And 
redemption, bought, bought back from the slavery you were in, the bondage you were in. These are treasures. So that it says, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Everything, your greatest treasures are in the Lord. Nothing you are in yourself, nothing you own or possess is a greater treasure than what you have in Christ Jesus. And so if you have the glory in anything, if you're going to rejoice in glory and be proud, it's in the Lord. You know it's okay to be proud of the Lord? You know, the Bible talks about pride being sinful. It is sinful when it's misplaced. But it is a good and godly thing to be proud of God. You got no reason not to be. Is there anything with God that you should be ashamed of? Absolutely not. You could boast about God all day long. Everything he said, everything he's done is worthy of praise. That word worship, we use that word. What's that mean? It means you are giving what is due, what he's worthy of. He is worthy of the praise. So we glory in the Lord. He is our treasure. Remember what God said to Abraham? He said, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. The most precious thing Abraham had was God. To the point where one day he was called to choose between his beloved son and God. And he chose God. See, faith does that. Faith, true faith, loves God above all things. We see that faith in Moses here in Hebrews, and we are called to emulate that kind of faith. He had respect unto the recompense of the reward. What is the reward? Like a gold crown? Now, the, the reward, you can have a gold crown here. You can have a gold crown without God, right? Some of you might have enough money, you could scrabble enough together, you could go buy you one or have somebody make you one, right? You get home and put a gold crown on and look in the mirror. No, that, that isn't the reward we're looking for. What is it? The reward we're looking for is God. To be with God forever. The communion with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and with the saints that have gone before. You think about many of you probably have family members that died in the faith of the Son of God and you get to be with them again one day. You think people you served the Lord in church with years ago and they passed away and they're not gone you didn't lose them you get to have them forever we think about our brother jimmy it passed away not that long ago and he's not he's not dead he's doing good and one day we get to join him those are great treasures great reward what could be greater 
than for Jesus of Nazareth to look into your eyes and say, well done. Good and faithful servant. Is there anything could come close to that? To win God's good pleasure. There's nothing comes close to that. So that's what he had respect to. That's why he was willing to leave the association of the rich and powerful and associate himself with God's people. Look at verse 27. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He forsook Egypt. We'll look back again at that passage I read from 2 Corinthians where I stopped. Second Corinthians chapter 6. And at verse 17, talking about how we have to disassociate with the, the things that are displeasing to God. In verse 17, God says this, Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. He had to forsake Egypt. He had to leave it, he had to leave it behind. Now, somebody might say, well, how are we supposed to do that? We're, we live here. You know, we, we have to be in this world system, an ungodly world system. We live here just like Daniel lived in Babylon, got carried away. How are we supposed to forsake this place? Well, Moses was able to forsake it literally. Remember that Egypt was a shadow and a type, but remember the spiritual reality. You have to forsake Egypt in your heart. You forsake it in your heart. You still live here, but it doesn't live in you. You live in Egypt, but Egypt don't live in you. That's the way it's supposed to be. Let's see what Jesus has to say. Turn to John chapter 15. Look at verse uh, 16, John 15, 16. Jesus says this, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If ye were of this world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So he tells us why. Jesus tells us why the world hates us. Because it hates him. And because you have been chosen out of the world. He says, I've chosen you out of the world and that you're not of the world. But then look over at chapter 17, verse 14. Here in Christ's prayer to the Father, he says this. Actually, I'll look at verse, I'll start verse 12. Chapter 17, verse 12. He prays to the Father. Jesus says this, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. So here, Jesus makes very clear, it isn't his prayer that we be taken out of the world. We still have a purpose here in this world. But that we not be of the world. You must live in the world, but the world must, must not live in you. And what are the things of the world that we have to avoid? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. This world has turned its back on God. And you can't let that spirit dwell within you, the spirit of the world. We turn back over to Hebrews. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. It's an interesting thing that the Egyptians in Exodus, they hated God's people, but they didn't want him to go. They had lots of uses for them. And it actually brought great wrath from Pharaoh that anybody would try to take them out of his kingdom. Refusing the world and choosing God's people will bring hostility going to bring hostility from the rulers of this world 
Everybody's got to be in. That's what the world demands. We're seeing that more and more. I do believe that what we see in the book of Revelation is going to happen. That there is going to be ultimately be a one world system. And that those who refuse to participate will suffer dearly for it. We don't so much see the religious aspect of this yet. But it's going to have a spiritual aspect to it. The Bible is very clear on that. When the nations of the world unite without Christ, it can only be Satan heading it up. It can only be Satan heading it up. I watched a video this morning. It was from the year 2000. A speech given at the UN by Ted Turner. He was the, the millionaire of the month back in those days. We got new ones now. But he was allowed to, to speak there at the UN. They had representatives from all the major world religions there. And he was calling for a one world religion. And everybody in the UN building was clapping and cheering. I thought that was a great idea. Does that sound like something that couldn't happen? Sound impossible? I do believe. I believe on the word of God. But that's exactly what's going to happen. Now, we might not live to see that come to its full fruition. I'm not saying this is something that's going to happen. I'm not, you know, setting any times. But there is no question that this is going to happen. And as things get closer and closer to that, the hostility against God's people is going to increase. Ted Turner in that speech, you can look it up. You can look it up on YouTube. He mentions those Christians who refuse to participate. Those Christians who say that there's only one way to heaven. See, they're a problem. He did not fear the wrath of the king. Moses did not fear the wrath of the king. He knew what he had to do. He knew what was right. God had told him his mission and he was going to fulfill that there is a sense in which all the lord's people are prophets you know moses was a prophet and it was uh during his ministry you know, he was under a heavy load of service that God said that he was going to take some of his responsibility and put it on other men that were there among the people of Israel when they were out in the wilderness. He said he put his spirit upon them. And when that happened, these men, in, in the middle of the assembly, they start speaking. They're obviously being uh, influenced and filled by the Holy Spirit. And Joshua, he didn't like that. 
he goes running up to Moses. Oh, no, we got to do something about this. You know, this is. And Moses said, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. He wasn't jealous of serving the Lord like he's the only one who should be able to do it. He said, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. And there's a sense of where every Christian has a ministry of speaking the truth of God's word. Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, or you're a child. Every Christian has to bear testimony to the truth. It says in the book of Revelation that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And every Christian bears that testimony. Every Christian bears that testimony. So you are called to be a witness. Whoever you are, you're called to be a witness. And you are not to fear. You're not to be afraid. Somebody said, well, I'm just a little kid. Doesn't matter. I'm a woman. Doesn't matter. When you are called to the high holy office of being a witness for Jesus Christ, you are to do that with courage and faith. And look at Ezekiel chapter 2. Now, in this passage... The Lord is calling Ezekiel, who has been carried away into captivity to be a prophet. And although we are not called to be prophets in the same way that the Old Testament prophets were, we are called to be faithful in bearing God's word to others. And there are lessons we can learn that, from this that, that we can apply to ourselves. So in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, the Lord says to Ezekiel, And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. Though they be a rebellious house, and thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. He says it three times. He tells them here they're not to be afraid. Because it's easy to be afraid. I'll be honest. Uh, I'm afraid. I ain't going to sit up here and lie to you and, and tell you I'm never afraid. That's not true. When you get a glimpse of how powerful the hostility is and the, the, the forces working in this world are not a joke. They are powerful and they can hurt you. He says here, he says, though briars and thorns be with thee and thou dost dwell among scorpions. How many of you enjoy being thrown into a briar patch? You ever, you ever done? <laughs> yeah, it's not fun, is it? Or be stung by a scorpion? I've never been stung by a scorpion, but I hope I never am because I hear it's a pretty horrible experience. And he said that's what it's like being with these people. So it's like you're in a briar patch and they're stinging at you, scorpion tails. He said that's what you got to deal with. And he says, don't be afraid. You are to speak my words to them, whether they listen or whether they don't. 
You don't look out and gauge and see, you know, whether or not the message is, you know, going to be acceptable or not. That's God's business. God knows who he's going to save. He's the one who has to do it anyway. That nice, friendly guy that you think that it would be perfectly safe. I've seen this happen. <laughs> Where somebody you think is perfectly safe to tell the gospel to, they just flip out and turn into a maniac. I've seen that with my own eyes. And somebody else that you think is going to beat you down when you tell them about the gospel, they got an open mind. They want to talk to you. They want to listen to what you have to say. So you can't, you can't judge by, by your eyes. You have to just do what God tells you. And so why did Moses not fear? It says he did not fear the wrath of the king. Now, if you look at verse 27, back to Hebrews chapter 11. It says that... Uh, the reason why he didn't fear, he endured seeing him who is invisible. See, that's getting back to faith. What is faith? Taking God at his word. Not going by what your eyes tell you or what other people are telling you. Just taking God's word, believing God's word. He saw him as seeing him who is invisible. You know, Jesus, when he was talking about Abraham, he got a lot of flack for this. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And they're like, these Jews that were listening to Jesus are, what are you talking about? You know, how do you know what Abraham saw and rejoiced in? You ain't even 50 years old. What did he say before Abraham was, I am? He said, I was there. Now consider this. Who wrote down the events of Abraham's life? Moses. Who wrote down the events at the burning bush? Moses. Now doesn't it make sense that just as Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day, and saw it and was glad that wouldn't be true also with Moses. Absolutely he did. When we think about the ministry of Moses. And how there were so many things given to them in the wilderness that all pointed to Jesus Christ. The tabernacle. Various ceremonies that they had. And in the Holy Spirit, these things taught them about the Lord Jesus. And for those who had that faith, they found in those promises the Christ and eternal life. The people of God had the same Savior we do. The people of God, the Old Testament, had the same Savior. It's true, He had not come in the flesh yet, but He was revealed in many ways. And those with faith took hold of those promises and they believed them. And they were willing to lose all for what God had promised. They had sins that needed forgiveness, just like us. And they trusted 
that Messiah would cleanse them from their sins. They didn't understand everything. They didn't have all the information that we have now. But they had the things they needed to know. And in the faith of God's promises, they were saved. By Christ, who had not yet come in the flesh and made the sacrifice, but now he has. Now we have the things clearly revealed that were shadowed forth for them. So we should be even more serious about holding fast to the faith. We have less excuse than they did. Moses had a lot more excuses to fall away than I have. So we have to be careful to be true to the Lord, to continue trusting in him, whatever the cost. So, in conclusion, let me summarize what we learn from this passage about the faith of Moses and what our faith should look like. Faith takes God at his word and joins the family of faith and forsakes the world. Faith chooses suffering over sin. Faith, if it has to choose between suffering and sin, will choose suffering. Faith endures hostility. Doesn't give up under the pressure. Jesus never promised us he's going to carry us to heaven on a pillow. He said, you have to take up your cross. And finally, faith sees God. Faith sees God. We see him now as he's given to us in his word. We hear his voice. We see him with the heart of faith. One day, we'll see him face to face. Amen.